1: living a clean life in 2024, which is hopefully the desire that we have as Christians. So we'll just pray as we start. Please feel free to pray for yourself and that God would reveal something to you. Feel free to pray for me and we'll just, we'll all pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are already here, you are in our midst, but we just invite you right now into our mind, our consciousness. We pray, Lord Jesus, comfort over those who need it, healing for those who need it, your holy conviction for those who need it, mostly a deeper understanding of your passionate love for all of us. Might we just understand and know and experience more of your love for us as we get around your word. We ask it in your mighty name. Amen. 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 Okay. Our primary passage of text for this morning is Romans seven fifteen to 25. And the Apostle Paul wrote this. I don't know about you, but I sometimes forget that he was not perfect when you read what he says, but he reminds us that he wasn't in this particular passage. He's talking about himself and this is what he says. I don't really understand myself for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know that what I'm doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. And when he says the law, he's talking about the way that God calls us to live in his word. So I am not the one doing wrong. It is the sin living in me that does it. By sin, he's referring to our failure to love God and love people the way that God intends us to verse 18 and i know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature i do want to, i want to do what is right but i can't i want to do what is good but i don't i don't want to do what is wrong but i do it anyway but if i do what i don't want to do i am not really the one doing wrong it is sin living in me that does it i've discovered this principle of life that when i want to do what is right i inevitably do what is wrong I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thankfully that part came. (laughs) So you see how it is. In my mind, I really want to obey God's law, but because of my sinful nature, I'm a slave to sin. On a scale of one to highly relatable, I feel like this scripture is right up there. I have the desire to do what is good, but I don't carry it out. I, don't, I do what I don't want to do. If this isn't me three months into setting New Year's resolutions and goals, I don't know what is. <laughs> I think of things like tapping, you know, ask for more time on my social media limits, going through the drive through again when I promised last time would be the last time, getting sucked into consumerism, buying things I don't need. We could list stuff all day. But there are two levels to this problem that we face. So first, we have the obvious problem. So often, as humans, we struggle to actually do the good things we want to do. Hopefully you struggle with that as well, it's not just me. But deeper than that is the problem of our definition of good. Before we even get to doing the right thing, we have to acknowledge that in our modern Western context, we get pretty confused about what good actually is. I had dinner with some of my lovely friends uh, a while ago and the conversation really stuck with me because we all kind of fall at different places on the spectrum of faith. And so we were all talking about our romantic relationships or our approach to romantic relationships which very unsurprisingly stemmed from our different worldviews. And one of my very beautiful, sincere friends, who just doesn't subscribe to a lived out faith, said, it just doesn't matter to me what the arrangement of my relationship looks like to other people as long as I'm happy with it, because I know that the only important thing is that I'm a good person. And now that is not the first time that I've heard that said, and I am sure that it won't be the last, because this is a pretty standard cultural metric for what is right being a good person. What I really wanted to ask her was, and when you say that you're a good person, by whose metric? And by what standard? And I, I believe that this is one of the conundrums of modern life. Because our culture tells us anything goes as long as you're a good person but then it doesn't give us a road map to being a good person. We kind of get to define it ourselves and if we asked each other this morning what does it mean to be a good person, it's very possible that we would have as many answers as there are people in the room. Mm -hmm. It's subjective or it can be subjective. There's no locus point for an actual moral authority in our culture because we've decided that we don't want one. Mm -hmm. That gets very messy. I'm always thinking about the challenges facing our young people because they have to work out what is even true when it comes to how to live. Um, Our modern Western culture tells them, tells us, all right, sexual freedom is good. We should be able to do whatever we want with our bodies. And our culture also tells us hurting people is not good. And we want to hold both of those values at the same time. But if we follow them all the way down, At some point along the road they conflict with each other. Me doing whatever I like with my body with no regard for right or wrong at some point is inevitably going to hurt someone else and likely myself. So we live in the midst of this worldview that it sounds really good, it sounds very evolved, like we are so sophisticated now that we can do whatever we please and never cause harm. But if we hold that up to the light and shake it around it just, it falls apart very quickly. I would suggest to us that most of us, including myself, we are a bit more concerned with looking good than actually being good. And we spend a considerable effort to make sure that we come off looking better than we actually are. And this, yes, it goes for the culture, but it absolutely goes for the church as well. In Matthew 23, Jesus said to the Pharisees, the religious leaders, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of, bo- full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. These were like the, the, religious, the religious leaders of the day. It used to be a common misconception that church people were holier than non-church people. Um, I don't think anybody thinks that anymore. (laughs) But a common misconception that's held now is that church people think that we're holier than non-church people, which is hopefully not true. But that can be thought of by people looking at the church from the outside. And it can also subconsciously be thought by us inside the church. But Scripture tells us in Romans 3 that no one is righteous, not even one. And that is the difference between the secular ethic and the Christian one, one of the differences. The Bible teaches us there is a locus point for authority. It is the Word of God. And none of us are capable of attaining it. But if we humbly accept God's authority and even more his deep deep love for us and we choose to live following Him, He will shape us and mould us and heal us and refine us from the inside out so that slowly, over time, we do look more like Him. He will clean our lives. So in order to get to that problem of, okay, I do what I don't want to do, I don't do what I want to do, we have to first accept that there is right and there is wrong. We find it in the biblical text. We have to accept that we can't twist that or manipulate it. We can't pick it apart, choose the bits we like, reject the bits we don't. If it is true, the whole thing is true, and it is our objective roadmap for how to live. And if we want to know what it actually looks like, Jesus is the embodiment of Scripture. He's the perfect example of what a good person looks like. And there's this other narrative in our culture that Christianity is a bit behind the times, a bit stunted, it's outdated. We've progressed past that kind of old religious belief to the idea of everyone should be free. And there's also a really high value for intellect in our culture I think sometimes we can forget that Jesus was far more intelligent than the smartest person in the world. His ways aren't just nice values for living or good ideas. They are the values that correspond to how the universe actually functions and works. As John Mark Comer says, when we live into Jesus' vision, we will thrive. Humanity will thrive. Creation will thrive. The world will thrive. So, when we follow the secular ethic all the way down, we will run into the reality of brokenness and emptiness. But when we follow Jesus all the way down, we will run into the reality of human flourishing. Not necessarily by the ways we would define it, but in the ways that are most important. Being changed from the core of who we are deep peace, lasting joy, eternal hope, purpose, community. So all of that to say, God's way is not just morally correct or ethically good. It is the best way to live into the way the universe actually works. It is the most compelling way to live. It is the thing that will take us to flourishing. And God doesn't call us to some vague definition of good. He calls us to a clean life, a holy life, a righteous life, a life by His definition, a life of integrity. We can think of a clean life as a life of integrity. And there are different definitions for integrity, but if we take a biblical one, we can think of integrity as the consistency between our interior and our exterior worlds. So that's where who we present to be to everybody else is a reflection of who we truly are on the inside yeah. and not just a facade that we're putting up.
0: Yeah.
1: Which means we're living a clean life when what we say is backed up by who we actually are. Yeah, I love to say this quote by Rich Velodas, "Integrity is not about living something perfectly, but wrestling with something faithfully." So if we go back to our problem in Romans, the Apostle Paul is writing, now, in terms of intimidating Christians who kind of had it together, he probably tops the list. After he met God, he lived this radically self-sacrificial life to preach the gospel. He wrote most of the New Testament. In most situations, Paul has the moral high ground. But even he is saying, I can't get it. I keep messing up. We look to him as a great example because he wrestled faithfully. So how do we do that? How do we live a clean life? How do we do what is actually good? How do we walk with integrity? Here is my my suggestion or my theory this morning. Our holy intention plus our broken action plus God's pursuit of us will equal a clean life. So we'll just touch on each of those our holy intention. What does it mean to have holy intent as we live our lives? It is renouncing the value of the culture that says being a good person is good enough. And it is showing up to the reality that as Romans 3, 11 to 12 says, no one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good, not a single one. Happy New Year again. Welcome to church. <laughs> We must humble ourselves and come to God in repentance like we just sang about. Once we begin walking with Jesus for a lifetime, we have to recognise that part of that process is continually wrestling with that part of ourselves, our sin nature, like Paul calls it. So this has to go beyond having this vague hope of like, I'm going to be a better person in 2024. We have to take the fact that God is holy, he is set apart, he's like no other, and we are called to be like him, seriously. Yeah. And Paul, Paul knows it, he's aware. This very holy person, I would say, says, oh, what a miserable person I am, in verse 24. Yeah. I do promise this will get very encouraging at the end, just stick with me. Sometimes worse than the outright rejection of God's truth is having a head-level acceptance of it, but a heart and life-level apathy. I was listening to someone say recently about how in our culture, we're not losing as many people to faith crises as we are losing them to brunch. What they meant was, it's not so much that we're struggling with atheism and people rejecting God entirely, as much as they just can't be bothered with the things of God because they're too caught up in deciding which new spot to hit for pastries on a Sunday morning. It's not an outright rejection of God, it's just a coolness, an apathy, and it means that we're sleeping on reality, sleeping on how the laws of the world God created actually function. Because holiness is not just about actions that we do or how we live. It's about how we see life itself. Do you see each and every single day as an invitation for the kingdom of God to break out in you and through your life? Do you see the potential for joy in Him, for peace in Him, for purpose in Him, for you to be an agent of His love to the people in your world? Bishop J.C. Ryle says there is a common worldly kind of Christianity in this day, which many have, a cheap Christianity which offends nobody and requires no sacrifice, which costs nothing and is worth nothing. It's challenging. To have holy intent requires showing up, showing up to faith with a deep desire to be radical in the midst of our culture solely because that is what will please and honour God. It might serve us, it might not in this life, it will definitely serve us in eternity, yeah. but our motive is just to do whatever honours God. Yeah. So, good. so to live a clean life, we need to have holy intention, but we are human, so with our holy intention will inevitably come broken action our broken follow-through, our flawed way of following through on our holy intent. Verse 22 of our scripture, I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Before we walk with Jesus, we're slaves to sin. Once we accept him as our Lord and Saviour, we are not enslaved anymore. We are free, but we're still in the struggle. Sometimes Christians give up after a few years of like trying to do the Jesus thing because they aren't changing fast enough or things aren't changing fast enough because we often sign up to follow Jesus wanting his freedom and then discover that it still feels like a battle, which is discouraging. But Ben Stewart says it really well. Sometimes people think becoming a Christian means you are freed from the battle, but that's a misinterpretation of what this life is. We are freed for the battle. We are freed not to struggle with hopelessness like before Jesus. We're freed to struggle with the power of the living God who has the ultimate victory, who is restoring the world, he's restoring you, he's restoring me. And one day he will restore his the whole world and his creation to completion. That's what integrity is, not living it perfectly, but wrestling faithfully. And so this is why, even though it's discouraging when you wake up and yet again you've done the thing you didn't want to do or you haven't done the thing you wanted to do, we don't need to despair. The ultimate victory has already been won. We're living in that in-between. It's the now and the not yet of the space between hopelessness and eternity. And as we live in the in-between, there are things that we will be delivered of in an instant, in a moment, in the manifest (sighs) presence of God. There are things that we will slowly conquer after many years. And there are likely things that we will wrestle with our whole lives. Yeah. But we do it faithfully, we do it in community, holding grace and forgiveness for each other. Amen. Amen. And so the last and most important part of the equation is God's pursuit. It can be easy to think that by us having holy intent and adding in our broken action that we're the ones doing the work we're the ones pursuing God but if we zoom out the reality is he is pursuing us yeah. Yeah. there is this well-known parable that Jesus told in the gospel of Luke and the parable is a story that kind of illustrates a spiritual truth uh, called the parable of the lost son you might have heard it um, I will tell it I'll, I'll paraphrase it essentially what we read about is there is this elder this uh, respected man within his community with two sons And the younger one one day comes to his dad and asks for his inheritance, which we can loosely translate to, hey dad, I wish you were dead. Can you please give me your cut of what I'm going to get when you do die today so that I can go and live as I please? And so the father divides up his estate. He gives the son what he wants and the son leaves to spend his money, lives a high life, lives a wild life. Eventually he loses everything. He burns through it. He hits rock bottom. He has no friends. And it occurs to him one day... Back at his father's house, even the lowest paid workers have food to eat and somewhere to sleep and they're actually better off than he is. So he decides to go back home and beg his dad for a job. And the real life parallel that Jesus is alluding to here when he tells this story is the history of the Israelite people, but also of all people, of you and me. We as humans, we have the special favour of God in comparison to all creation. We've been made in his image. But what we say to him is, hey, I wish you and your authority weren't there because I want to live how I want to live. And so I'm going to take the resource and the life and the energy that you've given me and live in pursuit of myself. And so we go after pleasure, power, entertainment, success, money, brunch, whatever, seeking to find ourselves in anything and everything but relationship with the Father. And as we all know, so often we find ourselves in some form of rock bottom, spiritually, maybe physically, maybe mentally, maybe emotionally, maybe financially, maybe relationally, maybe all of the above. The band's welcome to join me when you're ready. And so, back to the story, this son, he decides to go back home and beg for a job. And the people who are listening to the story Jesus is telling in Luke, they know what to expect is coming next in the story because they live in an honor-shame culture. So here, if you bring shame on your family, you are cut off. They even had a specific ceremony where the community would meet a shamed person at the border of the village and they would smash a clay pot on the ground to symbolise the fact that you are now ostracised, you're not welcome. So that's what the listeners of Jesus are expecting to hear is going to happen. The son works up all of his courage to try and earn a job only to be confronted and then excommunicated. Except some of us know that is not the story that Jesus tells. Instead, as the son approaches, his father sees him from a far off distance and he proceeds to pick up the hem of his long robes and runs out a very lengthy distance to meet his son. Now we read that and we think, oh, how lovely. It's very gracious of the Father. But it's a lot more weighty when we understand the context of the day. This is a this the Father. He is a respected elder in the community. He does not run out to the edge of his property to meet an outcast. He doesn't really run at all. He waits for people to come to him. He's dignified. He is respectable. He certainly would never expose his ankles. That is undignified and shameful. On top of that, he has been deeply wounded and coldly rejected by his son he has not been given the respect that he deserves and yet this father defies all expectation of what the appropriate thing or expected response would be and full of compassion he willingly shames himself to reach the son that shamed him and to stop the community from getting to him and banishing him and he welcomes his son back home with open arms So church, would you picture your own self for a moment in your worst moment, the worst of the worst of your broken action, your lack of holy intent, your apathy, your sin, your doubt, your unbelief. Picture yourself at the height of your fear and insecurity when it's hurt other people, when it's broken your relationships, when it's been a direct rejection of God. Picture yourself in that place. I picture myself up in that place and then we can look up to see God the Father. Holy, righteous, dignified, but not rejecting us, not standing far away, detached, waiting to see what it's gonna look like when our actions meet their consequences, but picking up his robes, running, coming full speed towards us in love and compassion, bringing our shame upon himself that we might just be able to come home into the loving arms of a father, even though it's the last thing that any of us deserve. It doesn't matter if you are leaning into it, kind of half leaning into it, rejecting it or totally unaware of it this morning. Your identity is defined by the love of the Father God for you. Your status as His beloved child, it has nothing to do with you and everything to do with Him. The only reason we can try to show up with holy intent and try to apply our broken action is in a response to His love to us. Yes, we're called to to have holy intention. Yes, we have to put legs behind that, put effort behind that. We have to show up to our transformation. But in the big picture, in the scheme of things, we are never the pursuer. We are the pursued. The love of God is not just about the moments where we can feel His manifest presence in worship, when we're on an altar at summer camp, or when everything in life is going really well and we feel like, oh, God's happy with me or blessing me. His love is moving towards you, running towards you in compassion when you are at the lowest of the low and in the middle of the messiest mess. He is the pursuer, we are the pursued. So we're all done. We are called to live a clean life, a life of integrity, where our exterior world is a true reflection of our interior world. We'll never live that perfectly, but we are called to wrestle faithfully. Our holy intention, us showing up, plus our broken action, plus God's merciful, loving pursuit, will produce in us a clean life over a lifetime.
0: Thank you so much for joining us online today. Really great to have you with us. And special thanks to those also who give online. Your generosity is making the way for others to hear the message of Jesus, both here in Australia and around the world.